So I am super, super excited to be chatting with you today. Do you guys also have load shedding? We started last night. Uh, it was supposed to be twice today, but it only seems to be once. So oh. we may we may survive the call. And you guys? We are also on some irregular 45 minutes on, then you're on for 40, for four hours, and then you're off for another 45 minutes. So at this moment, we are at the mercy of ESCOM and anything else. But what's wonderful is we'll, 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 we'll do as much as we can in the 45 minutes. And if it interrupts, guess what? We'll find other ways to capture thoughts, to capture thoughts, to capture thoughts. So Mike, my wonderful friend, let me tell you a bit about Full Circle, right? So Full Circle started in May of last year. This is level five um, of the lockdown, right? I'm losing my mind because I have all these thoughts. And I keep thinking, if I don't express these thoughts, I'm actually going to jump off my balcony. I am on the top floor, so it would be harmful if I did jump off the balcony. You may not bounce. <laughs> yes, yes, I may not bounce. So I, I literally just said, turned on my camera and said, hello world, and started expressing these things that were in me. And somewhere along the journey, I remembered how the richness of my life comes from the amazing people that I've met along the journey, and many of whom are still in my life, including yourself. So I thought what I also would want to do, in addition to just sharing my own thoughts, is having conversations with my friends, and the world is so lucky because they get to meet you through me, um, and talk about the things that connect us, but also the things that are, that are juicy and important um, and keep you up at night. And that's what we're going to do over the next 45 minutes. I know that I had said um, we'll talk around purpose and what that means for you, but we can start wherever you want to start, including the, do you remember when we met? That I remember very well. I remember that time in my life as well. That time in my life was leaving and not leaving advertising. And up till then I'd been copywriter, creative director, opened an agency, and then had one of those life-changing experiences where I ended up flat on my back for six months, not being able to move and thinking and staring at the ceiling, counting all the little dots on the ceiling, and that got boring. Then I got around to thinking, what do I really want to do? And it took me a few years to actually make the leap or the step, but I realized that for me, there was something beyond advertising. And then I began to think much more about the brand and everything else like that. So I left advertising, but I didn't. And I was reading in one of the ad journals about this new company that started up, Herd Boys. And it was a bunch of black people running an ad agency. Like, hang about, what do I think of that? I think it's great. And so I thought, I want to enlist, so I rock up at, was it Merchant Place? Yeah. I think you're at. Yeah. You know, it's one of these kind of three-room offices. And meeting, uh, first it was Peter, uh, then Happy, and yourself, and Quentin, and Demarpe. And 
Peter said, but what do you want to do here? I said, no, 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 I don't want to join you. Well, do you want to be a creative director? No, no. Well, what do you want to do? And I said, I, I don't know, I want to join in some way. I want to, because I think you're great. And so it ended up that I was going to facilitate, I think a few months later, one of your first strategic sessions. And you were then deputized by Peter and others to negotiate a price with me. Yes. And I've never been bargained down so graciously and so well. So that's how we met. And thank you for forgiving me because here we are. <laughs> But I remember, do you know what I remember about that moment, Mike, is that you were so insightful in understanding and seeing what could have been disablers, right? Um, in that very crucial stage of helping us create a uniform culture. Because remember, the Herd Boys crowd was loud and we were black and we were playing music at the top of the volume. The The... McKen Erickson crowd was lily white, very proper, um, and you never crossed your legs because that is just not what is done in civilized community. And, and your task was to get us to the other side, right? And I think, not I think, I know that your intervention and the, the, the quality of, and the stature of your engagement is what helped us cross that bridge. And you've continued to do that for many organizations since. I guess the, the question then is, how then did you land at that place that said, this is what I then want to do um, in helping organizations just to get better at, at creating a stickiness and then also just being important beyond the bottom line? What I worked on quite a lot, it's taken me quite a few years, to distill it is my own purpose. And I do a lot of work, as you know, with purpose in organizations. And it's, it's facilitating what is in their minds and just distilling it. And I find it a lot easier to do with others than myself. But I kind of knew it all the time. And basically, what my own purpose is, is liberating potential. I see I have the gift of being able to see the potential in organizations that perhaps others don't see in themselves. And I see it with absolute clarity. It doesn't mean I'm right all the time, but probably I am more than I'm not. And it is just bringing that clarity to bear on a situation. And when you're absolutely clear, you can also see the challenges, the if you like, there's this road ahead, but there are roadblocks along the way. There are great big boulders on the road. So you identify them, you remove them. And that's a lot of what strategy is about. It's removing these roadblocks in the way and just ensuring that free path to that, that potential that lies within all of us. And especially it lies within organizations that are driven by more than just the bottom line. Mm -hmm. But what would, Mike, I mean, remember in the beginning, there'd be conversations about how business exists to make a profit, right? 
um, and now we're having the no business needs to be purposeful and you can see the bean counters who are CEOs in many of these organizations just rolling their eyes going, oh, please don't bring me another tree hugger. What sort of, what sort of conversations are you having? Like, because I, I, I guess I struggle when I'm confronted by that level of cynicism, right? Where somebody says, well, if we're here to be good to the world, then we might as well just close shop because you know we're here to make business. How do, how do you navigate those conversations? I've seen in 20 years, the zeitgeist changing. 20 years ago, absolutely, it was, what is this thing called purpose? You know, let's have a vision, because we like visions, because we can be King Kong on top of the Empire State Building, beating our chest. I am the greatest, I am the biggest, I am the most respected. But even then, when you ask organizations to think about their purpose, they became more reflective and they thought about their impact on their world. And one of the things that people started to think about, I was remembering one session, uh, there's a guy and he was uh, the CEO of a public company and he was going home early because it was his kid's first, his son's first birthday. And I said, well, imagine 20 years time, your son's turning 21. And he said, what do you do in business, Dad? Um, are you going to say, well, we made record profits, we did all of this? And he said, no, look, that's important. But I want to say I made a difference. And 20 years ago, that may have been a minority. And now we see a growing tide of businesses. And a lot wrestle. A lot wrestle with the quarterlies because there are these quarterly demands. Yet big investors are beginning to think differently. When you get the head of BlackRock, one of the biggest um, investors in the world, saying, no, we actually want to know what, what impact you're making on the world. Just this last couple of weeks, been facilitating part of the largest economics consultancy in Africa. And they're talking about reshaping capitalism. Now, that's communist nonsense. <laughs> or it was a few years ago. And now to talk about reshaping capitalism in service of the environment, in service of society, to talk about activism in business. These are new conversations. And some people are doing it because they want to, some doing it because they believe they have to, and many just see this tide turning. And we're in a race against time, so, you know, we can put this off for another 10 years. We'll still be okay, I guess. A few more million will go without water. A few more million will be displaced by war. Few hundred million will die from various diseases. But it ain't going to go on much longer. And the sooner we can start changing, the better chance we have. And I think this is becoming mainstream. You know, and it's fantastic to, to hear you say that you're hoping that it's becoming mainstream. Because part of what we have to contend with. 
are the CEOs who say, I'm not here to save the world. I'm here to serve my customers. There are those, and they're still there, and some are amazingly successful. And when the customers start saying, what are you doing to save the world? They're going to think differently. And when the investment analysts are saying, but look at your environmental impact, they're going to think differently. Right now, we have one of our big banks saying by, I can't remember now if it's 2040 or 2050, we'll be funding nothing to do with fossil fuels. As of now, we're not going to put any new funding into fossil fuels. Now, when you think of our whole electricity system is based on fossil fuels, that means there's going to be quite a big difference in the next 20 years. It means coal mining and everything else have really got to think about their business because they ain't going to have one yeah. in 20 years. Yeah. And the analysts are saying, what are you doing? And so they're forced. And we see big miners actually thinking about, we have a duty beyond our shareholders, beyond our employees, to the societies in which we live. This didn't happen before. Work we did in Namibia um, for what do you do with a diamond mine when in the desert when diamond mining becomes unprofitable. Before you just close the town, look at Coleman, Scop, look at all those desert towns that have just gone. This time it's different. This time we're going to try and do something and we have a responsibility. These things are changing. The, I guess the question then becomes, what, what do we say to the leader who says, I'm in here for five years, so I don't have to deal with it. Because you also have that sense. So you've got the leader who comes in and says, mm. I can just cash in in five years and be gone, and it can collapse, and I don't care about that. For you and I, values are very important. I mean, when I worked at the Red Bank, one of the values was stewardship, right? This idea of taking care of what is handed to you and leaving it in a better condition. What do you think leaders should be thinking about around the subject of stewardship? Because somebody will say to you, Mike, this is fantastic. I agree with you. We should be thinking differently about what happens after the point of extraction. But it's not going to be my baby because I'm retiring in two years. And then the chair of the board says, well, excuse me, it is your baby. Otherwise, at first, the chair of the board will say, well, we're changing compensation to be based on your impacts. Your impact is just not how much profit you made this year. Your impact is how much carbon reduction have you made? How much water have you saved? What are you doing with your waste? There are different metrics. Yeah. If it's not the chairman of the board, it'll be the investment analysts. Investment analysts are changing. They're thinking about these things. And if it's not, then it's going to be the, the customers. And this new generation, uh, they're having a far more. I mean, when I grew up, I mean, what was the environment? I wasn't really sure, actually. So it was just a It's like, is it good enough to go surfing? That That's right. That's it. You know, um, it didn't enter any calculation. And now when kids are being brought up, it's becoming, not yet enough, but it's becoming front and center. As I say, I mean, basically, we've got to race against time. 
And you're absolutely right. There are going to be the holdouts. There are going to be the guys that just, in their five years tenure, want to make as much money as possible and scarper off to their golf course. Um, hopefully, they're not the majority anymore. And when the tide goes against them, if nothing else, when they go onto their golf course and someone else is starting to say about how well they did for the environment, you're going to feel quite marginalized. You're going to be influenced by your peers. I really look forward to a time where they, they, we can take shaming as a thing that goes into the boardroom to just cultivate positive behavior, right? So if you look at the JSE and you go the top 40 on the JSE, on those boards, only three have marketers, right? And you and I have had this conversation before, which is if you have a board that's constituted of bean counters and, and lawyers and the HR, all of whom are interested and important, yet you leave out the voice that can bring you access into community and culture and the source of your business, then you're missing a beat, right? So maybe there's an opportunity for, for entities like the Joburg stock market to start in introducing a new matrix to your point like for you to get listed we also want to know what you're doing for the environment so don't just come here and tell us um your market cap is x it is fantastic but what's your what's your what's your environmental index i mean what do you think of that it's beginning i mean there is esg which is coming into play more and more on the boards that's the environmental social and governance aspects yeah. and what they've had before is the person appointed to that is well good old fred we don't know really what to do with him we'll give him this yes it's fine and he can eat his salmon sandwiches in peace that hopefully is changing and that'll be activists you need activists inside an organization and those activists are coming and as i say in the end now it's a race against time because every year month day we waste and we're spewing more poison into the atmosphere the worse we're the legacy we're leaving for the next generations Wait, so what do we do next though mark um because here's my frustration i'm seeing women appointed to lead organizations that are in trouble which then means when you don't succeed, you are a woman, you're not going to succeed anyway. So it feels like you're just being set up for failure. So you have that one piece. You have this other piece where you've got people who look like me, who are black, who are being appointed to drive transformation in organizations. I don't know how you can ask a victim to save themselves, but that's what's going on in the moment. And there's another piece, right? And then you've got this other piece where, where organizations are treating this conversation about purpose is a cherry on top. It's a thing outside of what we do every day. I, I, I guess what I'm asking you is, where does the change begin? Does it begin at the level of the board, at the level of the investment committee, at the level of the executive? Is it driven by consumers? Is it driven by colleagues? Because many of these organizations, Mike, who have these grand exclamations, don't think about colleagues. I mean, the number of times I look at briefs where somebody says, help us win with these customers, I'm going, no. How are you winning with your colleagues? 
You know, I've always believed that branding comes from the inside out. And so it's got to start there. And obviously the most effective is to, for the CEO to get it. And purpose by itself is, a, is being often given a disservice. Oh, we've got a great purpose statement. Let's put it on our website. Yeah. There you go. Um, the purpose, however well it's crafted, is only 1% of what it's about. It's cascading that purpose. How does it cascade through to strategy and culture? How does it cascade then from strategy and culture to what we call mainstreaming and news streaming? You have to do what you do excellently, and you also got to do new stuff. And that all then cascades through to the brand, which results in the impact. And so without that whole cascade happening, you've just got fancy words for your annual report. Yeah. And But when people really get it, and when they can see that impact is a positive impact on the bottom line for them, for people and planet, then it works. And I think one of the big issues is there are not good practitioners. You know, for advertising, you've got a thousand advertising agencies, but some better than others, some really good. Um, management consultants, lawyers, accountants, but people that really understand how to facilitate and cascade purpose in an organization, still quite rare. Mm. Um, it's often an adjunct mm. of something else. Often, it, yes, a, a wordsmith can put a purpose together. It's like, give us a purpose, please. Thank you very much. Next, uh, you know, I'll buy some plastic straws. Yeah. Um, so it, it's really got to be, I think, more fully becomes a discipline and it becomes an understood discipline. And then I think there'll be some traction. What I've found is when people get it, and it takes time as well, you know, you get your purpose, it doesn't mean your organization changes tomorrow. Often what we see is the first people to leap on purpose are the smart marketers. So <laughs> the next moment is, oh, we've got an ad. Well, what else has changed? Then there is often stuff for clients. And then thirdly, or fourthly, it can happen three, four, five years later, what does the purpose mean inside the organization? What does it mean for the way you treat your call center staff? And what are the implications? Because purpose is not only things you start, it's things you stop. Yes. And so that's, that, those are the hard yards. But when people begin to get committed to it, when they begin to see how their bottom line improves, when they begin to see that they're beginning to get the first pick of smart graduates rather than the last, then things begin to change. Do you think a measure like uh, the best employer to work for is a useful thing for companies to pursue? I guess as a, as a, this is how we're changing and because this is how we're changing, this is a caliber of people we are, we are attracting and retaining. 
I guess it is. I mean, although I'm suspicious of the measure, to be honest, you know, the boss says, right, best employee to work for, you score me a 10, 10, 10, 10. Um, we do have the uh, bonuses coming up at the end of the year. Yeah. So uh, I'm being a bit cynical. And no, often, so often, how on earth do I know you're the best employer to work for? You know, I've been working for you for five years, I haven't worked for anyone else. So, of course, in theory, I do think, though, um, and a, some, a measure that we use quite a lot for our clients is the uh, EMPS, Employee Net Promoter Score. And not so much as because you get a 7.8 or an 8,3. Uh, in fact, what we have is, now we call it 4Q. We only ask employees four questions. That call it's electronic. Yeah. Basically, the ENPS. And then you actually start thinking about why you scored a seven or eight. Then the next question runs along the lines of what do you like about this company? The third, what's not so good? What don't you like? And four, either if you were CEO for a day, what one thing would you change? Or what would you suggest? Because with all these surveys, we don't want to ask what we want to know. We want to ask what you want to tell us. Because, you know, you see these endless employee surveys, hundreds of questions, and you agonize, look, I only got a 6.4 for this. I got a 6.6 .6 last year. But do you know where the employee gives a damn about that question anyway? So what we find is that you can get very rich data by asking less and listening, I guess, listening more, analyzing more. And that is something too. And then basically what we say from there is you've got your high ground, you've got your seen calls. Forget the middle bits for now. All you do for the next six months is make one high ground impregnable and fill in one sinkhole. That's all. And then and see the difference. Right? Mm. Because we run around, because often what happens uh, when the feedback happens, uh, the board sit, well, the board, the exec committee, sit and look at the results. They're absolutely horrified by all the negatives. They agree with all the positives. Or no, they ignore them. They ignore the positives. They're looking at all the negatives. Either they agree or they disagree, then they start fighting about the research. And then they want to do so much, they end up doing nothing. Because often we say, guys, you actually did quite well. Look at all the positive. Yes, 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 but they said they didn't like the CEO or whatever they said. It's okay. It's okay. Well, I worked in an environment where you would have this extra meeting, right? Where the CEO would speak and say, This is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to do. And all the execs just nod. You break for coffee, and at the coffee station, you're having the real conversation, right? <laughs> About this is what's missing, this is what needs to change, this was. So I guess the point is how do you create a culture where dissent? is encouraged. I mean, my time at the Red Bank, I remember the one, one of these fancy Bosborads we had gone to at a very expensive hotel in Cape Town, I must tell you. And, and we are having a vision session. So we have a new global CEO and he's here and he's all about 
customer centricity and culture. And I'm like, you are my God. And we are then asked, so what is the one thing you, you would want to offer as something for us to focus on that you think affects our ability to grow and achieve our stated ambition? Dunderhead over here thinks they're asking for the truth. So I raise my hand. <laughs> And I raise my hand and I say, um, in my time here, I have recognized that the people who succeed in this environment are the ones who know how to play the political game, who can show up at the correct meetings and say the right things when the CEO is present. So maybe that could be a conversation starter. I sat down and we broke for tea because it was a conversation stopper. Yeah. <laughs> Patos too. Um, yeah, there is. It's a really difficult one, and sometimes we try and bring that to the fore by, um, if we know that the culture in the organisation is a problem, we'll convene small groups and we'll present, you know, the the water cooler conversations, the real conversations. And it's the real issues. And yeah, there are some, it's hard to take. It's hard to take for anyone. You're sitting there and you've, you're heading this company, you think everything is well now. You're sitting there being told all these things you didn't know. And a lot you don't like, and it's hard. It's damn hard. And so there's a lot of preparation for it. Um, sometimes, often, what we will do is before presenting it in plenary, we'll take the CEO aside and say, prepare yourself. Yeah. This one is because you know, often your first uh, is uh, your first reaction is fight or flight. It is it's normal with us. But then you think about it, you consider it, and think, well, okay, it's not my truth, but it's their truth. And We've got to try and understand it better and how do we change it but that will come secondary so often you know if you're just presenting something in a meeting like that it's just too much of a shock i can't i can't take it like for instance if you have had an opportunity uh if the ceo had said okay we want some honest feedback but let's break for tea now think about it and if there's some feedback you want to give you think it's going to be hectic just give me a heads up first. Because we need to pre mentally prepare ourselves. Mm. And it's hard for anyone. You know? Mm. You know, if you sat now and told me the five things that I really screwed up on, yes. um, I think I'd break for tea too. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you now, we don't drink enough wine with Zara. We don't drink enough wine. We don't drink enough wine. <laughs> Drinking up wine, we drinking up wine. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. I'll take that on the chin. Speaking of which, though, did you not do work with the? You did work, right, with the wine brand, or was it? With... Yeah, this whole some years ago. It's quite a few years ago. We worked with Spear, and uh, it was a very interesting piece of work at the time, where and this was some years back. And it was just helping them with a with a strategy and but also looking at the wine industry in south africa 
and why it hadn't made the impact that, for instance, the wine industry in Australia and other places had made. And there's, obviously, there's not just one simple reason, but one of the main reasons was there were no dominant brands, um, whereas one brand in Australia just gobbled up so many others, and so it had a global heft. Plus, that we were known for you know, the, the cheap and nasty wines, and so our good wines were just degraded. Um, and Spear were doing it too. I mean, they were so they were a negociola. They were buying, I don't know, a container full of, of uh, grape juice and just shifting okay. shifting it over, and it was made into some dreadful stuff. And it was also looking at laddering wine brands. You get that good, better, best. Mm. And then how you look at that and how you price that. And I must say, since then, I'll put it down solely down to our intervention, of course. Since then, Spear has become, although of a, a low base, probably the largest exporter of wine in the country, I think, as, as a brand. And they have laddered their brands. and. At the top end, they have been successful. I mean, the wine is no more, and it's quite interesting. So it's our most significant wine estate that hardly grow any vines. And if you've been to Spear itself, you'll, you'll see leopards, you'll, you'll, yes. see, um, you'll, you'll see organic farming, you'll see pigs, um, you'll see art, beautiful yes. art. Yeah. Sculpture, great wines tasting center. Have you seen any vines in there? No. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> very interesting. Very interesting. So now tell me, because you you align, I guess the question is, do you always choose projects that are aligned to your personal purpose? How do you choose what to work with wine or what not to work on? It starts off with what I do want to work on. And what I am working on has changed actually recently in the last year, but it has been evolving. I love working on what I call purpose-driven brands, even though they may not realize they're purpose-driven, but they won't come to me unless they want to be or are. But I also love working on repurposing places. Um, a place is the most complicated of brands. With a brand, at least there's a measure of control of a place who controls London and New York, uh, a Nortuk, a Durban. Yes. Um, it is this chaotic mix of impressions that does form a brand. Mm -hmm. And also it's quite relatively easy to pivot a brand. A brand could be standing for one thing and then you can make it stand for something else. Nike at the beginning stood for winners, for champions. And then it just broadened its base totally for everyone could be a champion, the champions in you, it pivoted. However, a place is different. Um, it's got infrastructure and the infrastructure is a story of the past and a present that's changing at a bewildering rate. And so how do you repurpose places? Joburg has done okay, it was a mining town. But most other mining towns, what's happened to Vulcan? What's happened to all the mining towns across Southern Africa as the mines dry up? What's going to happen to the fishing towns when the fishing is less? What, what's going to happen with, in, there's a 
a prediction done by, I think it was Toronto and Terry University, that by 2100, which is maybe not in my lifetime or yours, but probably in the next generations, the three biggest cities in the world will all be in Africa. The 13 biggest cities of the top 20 in the world will all be in Africa. These have been built in colonial times, now having to expand the populations 10 times, 100 times their envisaged size. How's that all going to work? So places are fascinating. And also, all I say is new in my life is I've now also working on, I've become a portfolio person. Awesome. There is free thinkers in South Africa, which is around uh, purpose-driven uh, organizations and repurposing places. Uh, there's uh, Impact Trust, which is Africa, UK, Europe, which is new educational forms. Um, and then there's a new organization born out of Finland, born in the pandemic, called Mox World. And it's got a fascinating premise. It is giving life-loving technologies their place in the sun. If we think about the world right now, we've got, we need technologies that take carbon out of the atmosphere, that recycle water, that make the most of what we have. And so many of these technologies uh, invented by great engineers, great inventors, they may not have a marketing sense, they probably don't have a business sense, and they just sit there. Now, how can they be found, brought together, brought to scale? So I think it's a, so we're working on a couple of things there. That, as I say, it's a, and it's also a fascinating company. Uh, talk about not having offices. Um, the CEO is, uh, well, the founder is a Finn, yes. and she spends most of her life traveling around the world. Yes. Um, the other founder is a Finn that lives in Mexico. There is a Mexican that lives in Finland. There is um, uh, one of the guys that lives in Kazakhstan. There is someone else who is born in Singapore. She's been living in Croatia, but because her Croatian visa is running out, yeah. she's going to, where is she going to? Uh, somewhere else, okay. Greece. She's going to Greece. And so, but we can work like this. Now, this was unimaginable to have an organization like this before. And to have an organization like this, and in fact, the culture is called a nomad culture. Lovely. And to have an organization like this, but it is dedicated, its purpose is to find and bring life-loving technologies to scale. So whether it's from a financial aspect, from a strategic aspect, marketing, creative, what is needed to bring it to scale? So, and this is fascinating for me because then my next question to you is, because I was going to ask, what is the future of organizations you've just told me now? Because the future of organizations is literally an amorphous structure with a single unifying strategy, right? Because we don't have to be in the same place to see the same thing. But then the, then the next one is, what is the future of, of, of 
productivity like what is what comes after purpose is the another thing that businesses have to evolve into or evolve out of what's your sense yeah i think you have to evolve out of command and control and very interesting conversations that we're having in this nomad culture for instance around trust there are two ways of thinking one is trust is earned and the other is mistrust is earned so in other words do i start and start up by not trusting you and then you've got to prove to me how trustworthy you are or do i start off by trusting you now if i start off by trusting you i might now and again be disappointed i might now and again be taken for a ride and that's down to me because i'm not smart enough and not feeling the other person but more often than not i think by mistrust starting off with mistrust and you've got to earn my trust we just miss out so much on each other and so if i start off with trust then do i need all the command and control do i need you to be in the office from nine to five and i'm checking up on you or if you're home you've got to log in and you must log out and i see you took 40 minutes for lunch not 30. so that is we are just dehumanizing ourselves so i guess it's all around less of the command and control more humanity and you talk about productivity i think that productivity comes with first when i'm feeling good about myself i'm taking i'm going into my own responsibility i can be responsible and accountable for my actions plus i have the right technology because technology has enabled my life so this is enabling our conversation right now a hundred years ago no hundred two hundred years ago now um one of the richest men in the world uh, got his advantage through carrier pigeons it was rothschild when the battle of waterloo his messenger and his carrier pigeons came in first so he could make a killing on the stock exchange so we've come a long, we've come a long way and in the last 10 15 years and i don't think that the organization has kept up with the pace of technology and the pandemic has been a multiplier uh, accelerator and with all the tragedy it has brought it has also brought gifts and it's not that it's a gift i wished upon us but we have it yeah. and it is accelerating the next normal and we don't know what quite what that is yet like with offices um very few people who don't have to will return full time and then what is the office the office used to be a place you do work it doesn't become more of a social place you ask me what they miss most in the office it's the banter yes. it's that stuff and so yes sure we can do it to an extent online and you'll be seeing a lot more 
interesting online interactions. I think um, in a few years' time, we'll be looking at Zoom as we looked at the old fixed line telephones. Or the fax machine. <laughs> the great fax machine. Do you know, I'm as old enough to be quite proud of saying I was one of the first, we've, I think we were maybe one of the first agencies in Johannesburg to get a fax machine. There was one for us and one for one of our clients who's an employment agency. And we were so proud. Look, I remember transparency. Oh, God. The number I've had enough summers to know this. So, this, this, this conversation and this platform is called Full Circle. So, when I often I often end the conversation by asking my guests, such as you are today, what does full circle mean to you? Uh, let me tell you what it means for me. Coming full circle for me has meant integrating the multiple streams that provide fuel and fire for the way that I imagine and for the way that I create and for the, the, way, the way, therefore, I engage with the world. What does full circle mean for you? Okay. Do you know the Zen circle? Aha. This is a broad brushstroke that actually doesn't close. And the one question I was going to ask you is, when does a circle ever fall? So always got to be some air in the circle to allow things in and out. And it is that. So for me, when I think of a broad brushstroke, I think of, uh, sorry, full circle, I think of that broad brushstroke and a circle that is never quite complete, but full of potential. Fantastic. I thank you, because then for as long as the, even the fencing of that circle is permeable, it allows for this exchange, right? And you, and you have filled my cup to the full. So I thank you, thank you, thank you. See, this was wonderful. We should do it again. I think hopefully so. Hopefully with a hopefully with a glass of wine, so we can we can we can we can be a lot more articulate when we get to the full <laughs> But I send you off with my best wishes. I am going to come in. You look like you've got a lot more sun than in Norfolk, right? So you're liking your mm. life, your your sunshine. Absolutely. You know these bones are weren't made for the Cape winter and the Durban winter is gorgeous. So yeah. Hopefully, no, when, fact, we're both, hopefully when we're both vaccinated, we then can have a conversation in, in real life, as they say. Wonderful. So I look forward to it. Fantastic. Until next time, love and light as always, Mike. Thank you so much. Bye, sir. Go well.